Alright, well let's read the first nine verses to kind of set up where we'll pick up in verse 10 tonight. And uh, by way of review as well. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah's a prophet. You see this often in the minor prophets, that the word of the Lord, you see it as well in uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah as well, the three major prophets. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And again, this reminds us as well that the nations will be accountable to God. Um, why is that? Because God created the nations. Uh, he is Lord over all. And so the, the non-Israelite nations are accountable to God. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a, a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. He threw the wind. Um, this speaks and testifies to His utter sovereignty. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, laid down and was fast asleep. And so the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out. If you'll remember, these are the very verbs that we see in verse 2, where God says to Jonah, Arise, call out to Nineveh. And so here they're hearing those very, uh, uh, Jonah's hearing those very words from these pagans, which must have caused some kind of remembrance uh, in his mind. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us. These are idolaters. They are polytheists, so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That brings us up to where we will pick up tonight in verse 10. Now you know at this point, you likely know about the transgressions of the Los Angeles Clippers owner, Donald Sterling. What gets me is that perhaps the most severe transgression has been just kind of uh, swept underneath the, the mat, and that is he's an adulterer. Uh, he is an unrepentant adulterer, and he will even sit with his mistress at the games while his wife is there. It's just remarkable. It is utter dysfunction. And yet, we also know that the words he spoke um, about African Americans was egregious and sinful and wicked. And um, it, it really betrays a heart uh, of self-righteousness, okay? And pride and prejudice. Well, this week, uh, I guess it was probably Monday, May the 19th, um, three-time All-Star African American uh, basketball player Gilbert Arenas in response to Sterling's 
um, apology responded this way. He said, I'll be the first to accept your apology. As a man who's made a mistake or two in life, I know how hard it is to look at yourself in the mirror when you let so many people down. But for anybody who can't and won't accept his apology, you need to look in the mirror because we're not perfect. Forgiveness will destroy racism, uh, not more hatred. Well, Gilbert Arenas is speaking from a unique uh, position himself. He's been banned from the league. Uh, he was uh, arrested in 2009 uh, for felony gun charges. At the time, he spent 30 days in a halfway house and without pay, and eventually um, he was out of the league within three years of this felony, and uh, here was a three-time All-Star. You know, I don't know if he's a believer. I, I have no idea whether this man is a believer, but one thing's for sure. Generally, those who are most forgiving and those who are more sim most sympathetic to outsiders, and Sterling has made himself an outsider, hasn't he? Uh, he was once an insider, but now he's an outsider. Uh, those who are most sympathetic to outsiders are those who, at some point in their past, have experienced a great need for forgiveness themselves. And perhaps have been outsiders themselves. And conversely, those who are least forgiving perhaps have never been at that place where they really sense their need for forgiveness and perhaps they've really never been an outsider. Or perhaps they've somehow gotten over these things. Well, I think that's where Jonah is. Jonah has never been an outsider. He's an insider. He's, he is a prophet in the people of God, the covenant people of God, uh, the Hebrews, the Israelites, the, the people of whom God has made covenant with. He has always been an insider. And uh, evidently, there has been some kind of self-righteousness that's been provoked in his life because he's, he's somehow gotten over the mercy that he and his own people have experienced. And so, here's a man who is obviously self-righteous because he does not want that uh, message of saving mercy, saving love, saving grace to go to the outsiders, those outside the covenant people. And I'm telling you, uh, this is epidemic in churches. It's epi I, saw, I grew up, I, I've seen it here. Uh, I, had a, I had a person, I would never name names, but today, by the way, is my four-year anniversary at the church. Uh, so, yes, to me and to Heather... Uh, <laughs> And about two and a half years ago, I had a woman sit in my office and she told me that the reason she was leaving the church, and I say this before Lord, before the Lord, she said, I don't like the new people. She told me that. Now, well, that, <laughs> at least she was honest, but she said, I don't like the new people. She said, I sat in my Sunday school class a couple of weeks ago and I looked around all these new people. She said, I just started crying. And that's the spirit of Jonah. And then I had another man tell me at a lunch, um, he was honest, I don't like the seminary people. Well, so it's easy to think, there's, there's no way there's a person like Jonah that still exists. And, yes, I'm sorry, Jonathan. Uh, <laughs> um, but that is the spirit of Jonah. 
It is a disdain for those outside your world. And really, at the end of the day, it's self-righteousness. And, and, and that kind of unrepentant self-righteousness is a dangerous place to be. And, and so Jonah is a microcosm of Israel at this point in their history. But he's a microcosm of the human heart because all of us have those tendencies. All of us have the tendencies to kind of look with disdain at those who don't look like us, those who don't act like us, those who don't dress like us, okay? And those who don't believe like us, and those who don't have the same political views as us. And it's easy to look at, our, at these people and just despise them. And, and I recognize that in my own heart. But the thing is, we're supposed to look at Jonah and see that in us and be repelled by it. Uh, and, and be uh, convicted by it and be brought to repentance. That's the purpose. It's so easy to read this text and go, oh, Jonah, you bad guy. No, we're to look in the mirror when we read Jonah because it's pointing right back at us. And so we have seen up to this point that God is calling Jonah to a despised people to call them to repentance. And he wants no part of it. And so he flees. But you cannot outrun God. Now, I do believe that, there, that unbelievers are not under the disciplining hand of God. They're not, under, they're not under the chastening hand of God. And so I believe unbelievers can do egregious acts, and it appears there to be no consequences. Well, there are. There's going to be an end-time consequence for the unbeliever. But for a believer, when we disobey, I can assure you, God's anger, God's loving anger, will not allow you to persist. As Scott said this morning, we will be sanctified. Uh, we can be sanctified and make it easy on ourselves, or we can uh, somehow kick against the goads, and yet God will bring sanctification. God's anger at our sin is our hope. And you need to think about our children. I, I guarantee you, our children will prefer us not to be angry at their disobedience. But if we were not angry at their disobedience, they would end up in prison. And so our anger at their disobedience and rebellion is their hope, even though it's not a very comfortable situation for them. What's well, the same place with Jonah? In fact, this week I was meditating on this, and it reminded me of Jeremiah 23. You don't have to look there. Jeremiah writes this later, and I wonder if there's a pondering over what happened with Jonah. Listen to what he says in Jeremiah 23. Verse 18, For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear His word? Or who has paid attention to His word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord. He's talking about the storm of the Lord who comes on those who are believers, who are covenant people, but are not regarding the word of God. Behold, the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth. A whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. Now you go, I thought you said a believer. Well, if a person does not repent when the storm comes, that person proves himself not to be a true covenant believer, a true believer in Yahweh. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until He has executed and accomplished the intents of His heart. You get that? He will not turn back until He has His way. And so if we're a believer and we persist in our uh, foolishness, God will have His way with you. Not because He doesn't love you, but because His love for you is infinite and it's holy. 
And then he goes on and says, But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Do I not feel heaven and earth? You cannot hide from God. He fills heaven and earth. So if you run to Tarshish, trust me, God is in that boat. Alright? And He's in the sea. He's in the wind. And that's where we are. Now here's the question as we begin, as we approach our text tonight, starting in verse 10. Were the mariners partly the reason for the storm that we're reading about in this passage? Well, in one sense you could say that. They're false worshipers. Uh, these these uh, mariners are idolaters. They're polytheists. So in one sense, you could say that they were partly uh, at blame for the storm that they're experiencing. But more specifically, the storm these mariners are experiencing is due to the sin of a believer. I mean, that is uh, a sobering thought if you think about it. Remember Achan? Uh, remember Achan in the, the book of Joshua? He sinned. He, he, he stole some bounty, he covered it up, and it ended up costing the nation. They're defeated at the battle of Ai. How about in 2 Samuel chapter 24, uh, David, um, who, who um, I guess counts his men, he does a census, and as a result, 70,000 died as a result of David's sin. Now, we talk, oftentimes think about David's murder and his adultery. I mean, 70,000 died because of one man's sin in 2 Samuel 24. Sin never happens in a vacuum. Every time we sin, it's going to affect others. We need to keep that in mind. Even your most private sins has consequences that you may not even recognize. Sin never happens in a vacuum. It will affect your family, and it will affect this church. And it's going to affect the lost people that, are in, that God has brought into your world. Sin never happens in a vacuum. And here, uh, Jonah sins, and these mariners may drown. And what Jonah says is going to pierce their hearts. They're asking who he is. And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, I fear the Lord. Verse 9, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And this message has what I believe an eternal impact on these polytheists. I believe these polytheists are going to be saved. And, and let me make my argument. You may not agree because it's not as clear as maybe we would like it to be. But I believe these, uh, these polytheists are saved tonight. Um, and here we see God's jealousy for the mariners. We've seen God's jealousy for the, for the Ninevites. Uh, we've seen God's jealousy for Jonah. And here we're going to see God's jealousy for these mariners. Look in verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, What is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Because he had told them. So this tells us that everything Jonah said to them was not explicitly laid out here. There are some things that Jonah tells these, these men that are not explicitly spelled out in the text. Verse 11, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me 
that this great tempest has come upon you. I do not think that his motive here is noble. I do not think that he's asking them, which is essentially suicide. I do not think he's asking them to do this, throw him into the sea because he cares about their well-being. Jonah has not repented at this point. Uh, Jonah does not care about these men. Uh, Nor do I think he's broken over his sin. I don't think he's repented here because repentant people do not commit suicide. Alright? Judas uh, committed suicide. He was not repentant. Um, And I do not think that that is what's going on here. The essence here is that he will not do God's will. He is still defiant. He is angry at what God wants him to do. He does not like who God is. Remember, you look over in chapter 4, it explicitly tells us why he did not want to go to an end. If you look in verse 2, he says, This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not like his God. That God would show mercy to these evil, wicked Ninevites. He does not want to do God's will. He easily could have said, it's clear that the reason this storm has hit is because of my sin. And so I'm going to repent. I want you to turn this boat around and we are headed. I want you to head it towards Nineveh. I am going to Nineveh. Could it be that if he had said that, in the repentance of his heart, that the storm would have stopped immediately. I think Jonah knows that. And perhaps he may even have had some headwind. He may have had the best wind possible if that had been the case. But that is not what he does. He is still defiant. He knows that if he goes to Nineveh, God is going to save. And he also perhaps knows, remember he's a prophet. And he is, he is a prophet in the 8th century. The 700s B.C. Do you know what happened in the 700s B.C.? 722 B.C., do you know what happened? These very Assyrians, okay, come into the northern kingdom where John is a prophet. He is a prophet of the northern kingdom, and they exterminate them. I mean, they absolutely depopulate the northern kingdom. I think Jonah knows that. Jonah knows that God's going to bring mercy to these people and then he's going to use these people as a punishing rod to his people and he cannot bear the thought. So he would rather die so that the rest of his people may live. That is almost a sordid kind of typology. Um, It would be better that one man die than the whole nation perish. Okay? Just kind of a backwards kind of shadow. A backwards kind of typology at the one in whom he points. Jonah would rather die than obey. And that shows you how far sin can take you. Sin is not, dy- is not static. It's dynamic. Sin takes you further than you ever dreamed you could go. It makes you stay Longer than you want to stay, it makes you pay more than you want to pay. Uh, You think you hear these uh, serial killers, and Ted Bundy, for instance. Ted Bundy, um, he was converted to Christ. 
But the night before he was put to death, James Dobson, Focus on the Family, interviewed him. You probably could find it on YouTube. It's a remarkable interview. This guy said he started. His, his whole objectifying of women, seeing women as objects rather than persons, started uh, by peering into J.C. Penney catalogs. All right, seeing the women in the J.C. Penney catalogs, and then it just escalated. It escalated. Before long, this man is a serial killer. That's not to say that most people turn into serial killers. It's just an example of how sin is dynamic in a person's life. Uh, it absolutely is destructive. And this man would rather at this point die than obey. That shows you where Jonah is. And he foreshadows Jesus who would rather obey than live. Do you see the, the distinction there? He would rather die than obey. Jesus would rather uh, obey than live. <clears throat> when we talk about typology, oftentimes, when you, what is a type? It points us to something, right? And so these events, these persons, these offices, these ceremonies, they point us to... Um, and its type is... Um, it's from the same word that means typical. So God is showing us something of how He typically works, okay, in salvation. And so a type speaks to something that God typically does. And it finds its fulfillment, or what we call the anti-type, the type, or, or the thing in the place of the type, in Jesus. Well, the thing about types is oftentimes they're negative types, all right? Uh, we have a negative type, and it shows you there's, a, there's continuity between the type and the anti-type, but there's also discontinuity. Well, the discontinuity here is that Jonah would rather uh, die than obey, and the one in whom he points would rather obey than live. And that shows you how far sin has taken him. Well, notice in verse 13. Nevertheless, nevertheless, in, in spite of what Jonah said to them, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not. That's a very important phrase there. They could not. Lost my place there. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Uh, these men are faced with a dilemma. And here's the dilemma. If they throw him overboard, just flat out overboard, they're guilty of murder. The law is written on the heart. So though these are not true worshipers, they know murder is wrong. And that must have stung Jonah because he, they care more about him than he does about them. But if they don't, they're not only um, in disobedience... To a prophet, they'll likely die. If they do not do what this prophet tells them to do, they'll likely die. So they're either going to be guilty of murder or they're going to, be, uh, they're going to likely die. Now, I want you to think about this. God has revealed uh, through Jonah, through the prophet, a way for these mariners to be delivered from the storm of judgment. That is a very important principle that the Old Testament is establishing. It's found in every book. Don't overlook it. 
God has revealed through the prophet the way these pagans can uh, avoid judgment. Safety and deliverance from God's judgment would come through the sacrifice of one man. The man Jonah. Who's willing, granted, not in a godly way, but who's willing to lay down his life. Now, he's not willing to lay down his life because he loves them. But it's still, we see this pattern. But these men, instead of hearing the, the, the prophet, um, decide to seek safety from judgment without a sacrifice. Okay? They seek, they reason, they rationalize how they can find salvation from this storm without responding to the, prophet, the prophet's word and without the sacrifice. And so they row and they row and they row. They are rationalizing, okay? They're rationalizing their own means of survival. They are depending on their own resources. They're depending on their own abilities. And they refuse God's only means of deliverance. Isn't that a picture of the natural person? It really is. Um, you, you see these people, and I have, I have shared with them, I have, I, I, and I know you have as well. Many of you have, have, have maybe they're people in your family. And they just, they believe that if they just keep giving money to the United Way, alright? If they keep doing good things, in the end, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Uh, I was watching this week... Um, Todd Frill, this man who has this ministry called Wretched. And uh, I tape it every night at 11 o'clock. And uh, um, watch it today. I was watching a little bit this afternoon. And this guy, he, he, go, he goes on the Georgia Tech uh, uh, the campus. And he, he engages these, these uh, you know, secular students. And he will, I mean, it's remarkable how many of them, virtually all of them that he interviews, believe that they're good people. So he'll just take them to the to the uh, you know the Ten Commandments, and he says, "Have you ever lied?" Oh yes, everybody lies. That's just human nature. You're a liar. Would you say that you then you're a liar? And then in the day he said, "Have you ever lusted?" And, yeah, everybody lusts. He said, "Well, you're." And Nate said, "Daddy, what is that?" And uh, um, uh, I said, "That's the last time you're watching this." Um, uh, <clears throat> but he establishes by the law that. Uh, every person he encounters is a lawbreaker. And if there is a God, okay, and many of them say that there's not, they don't believe that there's not, will you not be accountable to this God for your lawbreaking? Okay? And, and, and see, when we, when we point it that way, when we position it that way, it's hard for people to reason their way into heaven. But most people do try to do that. Um, but because of God's mercy in this text, as they row and as they row, guess what happens? The winds get more intense. It says, they said to him, what shall we do? The sea grew more and more tempestuous. That's verse 11. Um, and that just shows you they couldn't. Notice it says, but they could not. They could not do what they wanted to do. This is the turning point in the passage. These four words, and they could not, 
ends up being the turning point for these men. Why? Because they realized they couldn't beat the storm. They could not beat the storm. So it turns out for their good. If the storm had calmed, do you think these men would have ever been saved? No. No. Um, the storm got more ferocious. Okay? Sometimes I will, I will see people who've had a, a very difficult situation happen in their family. Uh, maybe the person's in a hospital. Maybe there was a tragedy. And, and I go, does the family, does the lost family members, do, do they not recognize that this may be God's wake-up call to them? I can't always say that that's the case, but I often think it. Are, are you not considering the fact that this may be God saying, Wake up! Repent of your sins! I want to say that to them. And I, and I essentially do sometimes when I'm praying over uh, their, uh, their family member. But in this case, the fact that the storm got more ferocious, tempestuous it says, it gave them a moment of clarity. And they turn in desperation to Jonah's God. I believe that. Uh, they stake their entire well-being and safety on the sacrifice of Jonah. Now, if that's not a pattern that's being established in the text, we're being naive here. Look in verse 14. They've tried it their way. Now, verse 14, Therefore they called out to the Lord... Oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. We need to know that this, this storm of God's judgment is stronger than any sinner. And that is obviously the case in this text. We have absolutely no ability to escape the judgment. The storm, the wrath. Uh, the storm of God's wrath, His judgment will destroy us, okay? It will utterly destroy us unless we receive God's means of escape. I don't care how comfortable your life is presently. You may be a billionaire who can eat at any restaurant any day of the week and fly anywhere in the world on your, uh, one of your five private jets. And you may feel like that you have beaten the system, okay? But you cannot and will not escape this storm. And that's where these men had come. And I believe they are converted. Which would have required, let's be honest, a, a saving message from Jonah. We don't have the full message. We see at the end of verse 10 that we don't have the full message. There are things that Jonah said to them that... Um, that we're not privy to. But it would have required... Because uh, God does not save without the message. Romans 10 says that. Uh, how will they uh, hear if we're, if we're not sent? And, um, you know, how will they be saved if, if we don't preach? And so, it would have required uh, a, a message of some kind of atoning grace and mercy from Jonah. But here's why I think... These men were converted. For, for, one son, for one thing, notice that three times in verse 14, they used the name Yahweh. That's the covenantal name. Have you ever heard of an unbeliever on television, uh, maybe a musician, an actor, or an athlete, and they thank God? Okay, they thank God. That's a generic name. 
It's a generic name for God. And um, Adonai is a name that is often, uh, not Adonai, but Elohim is a name that is often depicted in that way. But this is the covenantal name. Now, we can't be completely sure of this. I, I recognize that. But they use the name Yahweh. Uh, o Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they are using the covenantal name. There is no more of this polytheism. You call out to your God and let's make sure that all of our, our uh, you know, eyes have been dotted and T's crossed. They are confessing Jonah's God. He said he is the God of heaven and earth. He's the God of the sea. Um, and they are confessing him. But there's something else I want you to see here. It says, For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Now, there are several places in the Old Testament where you have this language of the Lord does whatever pleases Him. And in every case, it is distinguishing God from the false gods. I want you to give just you a couple here. Turn over to Psalm 115. I want you to see in Psalm 115, uh, verse 3, same language. Psalm 115, verse 3 and 4. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. It's the same language. Okay? And notice, their idols... Who, whose idols? The, the, the polytheists, those who believe in many gods. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. We become like what we worship. Those who make them become like them. So do all we trust in them. And then if you look over just real quickly, Psalm 135, um, Isaiah 46 is another passage. We won't look there for lack of time. It's the same language. But if you look over in Psalm 135, it is very clear that this language is used in the context of a confession of the true and living God. Look in Psalm 135 verse 5, For I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. There's that language in heaven and on earth, in the seas, ah, and all deeps. And so going back to our text, I believe that this is a conversion on the ocean. Um, and what's ironic it comes through Jonah's anti-missionary activity. God is big and He is good. And I find that so much hope in this because, you know, let me just tell you, unless you've been a preacher, you don't really understand this. Robert can, can testify to this. So often you feel like a failure when you come out of the pulpit. You really do. You study hard, you pray up, and you come out of that pulpit with your tail beneath between your legs, and you're, you're, you, you just want to go sell insurance, okay? Um, you, you want God... You, God, you, I missed this one. I, I, I know you, you were calling my brother. You weren't calling me. 
Um, and, and God uses us in spite of us. I mean, this guy's in utter disobedience, and God uses him. And, and, and I really believe that to be the case. I believe that these men are converted, and I find great hope in that. Look with me in verse 15. And so they picked up Jonah. So now they are responding. Now Jonah's, mo- again, John- Jonah's motive is not the glory of God. Uh, Jonah's motive, I do not believe, is love for these people. Okay? He, I believe he, he is still in defiance. I think that repentance is coming, but it's not right here. They picked up Jonah, so they're responding to the prophetic word, and they recognize their only hope is through the sacrifice of this man. This man from Israel, okay? And so they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea. And it's interesting that God is the first one to hurl. Uh, we see this language of hurl. They hurl, uh, and everything else has been hurling ever since. But it's ultimately, God is sovereign over all of this. They hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Do you see this? Jonah died. Now, we can debate on whether he really died. I mean, Al believes he died. Um, and my youth pastor, Blake, believes he died. And perhaps he died. I don't think that's a dividing issue. They think he died. And he's certainly being thrown into the sea. Is a, it, it's certainly a picture of death if he died or whether he did. But in this case, Jonah died that these pagans might Live. Sound familiar? It should sound familiar. Uh, I love what Jacques Ellou, a French scholar, I love speaking French. You know, the pains are, my ancestors are French uh, Huguenots. You know, that's that's where my French accent comes from, if you've wondered. So, (laughs) he says, at this point, Jonah takes up the role of the scapegoat. Y'all know the, the language of scapegoat takes us back to Leviticus 16. And the sacrifice he makes saves the sailors. Now again, I don't think his sacrifice is out of love. The sea calms down. He saves them humanly and materially. What counts is that this story is in reality. The precise intimation, it intimates, it points of an infinitely vaster story and one which concerns us directly. What Jonah could not do, but his attitude announces, is done by Jesus Christ. He, it is, who accepts total condemnation. It is solely because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that the sacrifice of Jonah avails and saves. All right? So they're putting their faith, in a sense, in the type that points to the anti-type. And then we're going to close this out today. We'll pick up verse 17 um, in chapter... I believe verse 17 belongs with chapter 2. It does in the Hebrew Bible. I believe that verse 17 is actually a part of chapter 2, so we'll pick up that next time. But notice verse 16 as we close here. The men feared the Lord exceedingly. This, to me, is conversion language. Uh, They fear Yahweh exceedingly. What does that mean? They fear Him above every other entity. They fear Him exceedingly and they offered, notice, a sacrifice to the Lord. And they made vows. Literally, they, they fear the Lord with great fear 
and they offer a sacrifice to Him and make vows. They likely do not know the right procedures of the, uh, for the Levitical sacrifices. I mean, they haven't been taught, okay? These are baby believers, if you will. But they evidently saw the need for some kind of sacrifice. Alright, so they offer sacrifices. And what are these vows? These vows are essentially to say there's more sacrifices to come. We recognize we are committing to you, our covenant God. You are the Lord over heaven and on earth. Jonah's God is now our God. You have saved us through the sacrifice of Jonah. And now we commit to you. And so this is a confession of covenant fidelity. And though the text doesn't tell us, do you know where they're headed? They're headed to Spain. Modern day Spain. That's where Tarshish is. Could it be, text doesn't tell us, that they were the first to plant the seed of Israel's faith, if you will. Remember, we looked at Genesis 12 many, many moons ago. God said, through the seed of Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. Well, guess what? The nations are being blessed through the seed of Abraham, the man Jonah. Could it be they took the gospel to Spain? Could it be these converted men take that gospel that they have now received from the reluctant prophet and they take that message to Spain where the message is going to be planted and watered? It's hard to say, but I like to think that way. Concluding thoughts, and I just want to open up a couple of questions from you. First of all, remarkably... Even in Jonah's rebellion, there is spiritual fruit. Jonathan Edwards wrote a great deal on how we need to be very careful about distinguishing between spiritual gifts and spiritual, or perhaps you could say, fruit of the Spirit. Jonah's a gifted man. He is a prophet. And he is a rebel at this point. He is disobedient to God. He's a believer. But he's living in disobedience because of his self-righteousness. And God is using him in spite of himself. And so, we need to be aware, beware of mistaking usefulness to God for communion with Him. Every Sunday, there are preachers who get up in a pulpit who God uses in spite of themselves. Okay? Sunday school teachers, missionaries, evangelists. We need to be very careful. There was a man down in Fort Lauderdale, I can't think of his name, Bob something, he pastor of a 20,000 member church. He planted uh, Calvary Chapel down there. God was using him mightily. Meanwhile, he has several affairs going on. He just got exposed in the last few weeks. He, he confessed that not only were there multiple affairs, there was uh, pornography. And God was using him. So we have to be very careful about that. Secondly, it also reminds us that we should not be intimidated by pagans. All of us meet people that we think subconsciously there's no way that person would ever believe. There's, these guys are not only pagans, <laughs> they're sailors. <laughs> My goodness. Uh, not to stereotype here, but let's be honest. Um, these men are pagans, and on paper, there's no way these men are going to be saved. In fact, they're on their work boats. You know? The con and the conditions aren't really, um, you know... The best conditions for conversion. Um, we need to...
be very careful about being intimidated by pagans. God is in the saving business. And wherever God takes you, uh, He's taking you as, a, as an agent of salvation. He is. That's where he, wherever God calls you to, that is His strategy. Okay? Uh, so wherever it is, it, what, the neighborhoods you live in, the places you play, whether it's the golf course, the gym, uh, wherever it is, that is God's strategy. Okay? In His renewal project. Don't be intimidated by the pagans. God can save anyone. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Thirdly, it also reminds us that as believers, we cannot escape God's presence, even if we compromise the ability to enjoy and live peaceably in His presence. Once you are a believer, God has committed to you to be covenantally present. You may as well just submit in obedience and enjoy Him. Okay? Uh, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's not just for the Great Commission. That's for your disobedience as well. Lo, I'm with you always. Oh, you want to disobey? Lo, I'm with you always. All right? Um, Finally, in a fallen world where wickedness exists, as I said last time, the anger of God is our hope. The anger of God. We we live in a world that don't want to talk about the the, the anger of God. But His anger is our hope. We do not want a God who is fully aware of the brokenness and the rebellion and the wickedness, okay? And the distresses of fallenness and does nothing about it. We don't want that kind of God. We want a God who is angry, yes, with the wicked, but who is angry with my sin as well. We want a God who is angry with our sin. That proves He loves us. Your anger at your children's sin proves you love them. Okay? And because of His righteousness and His loving anger, no one can successfully defy His sovereign purposes. And so, those are some closing thoughts as I consider this very important passage. Now, I want to 